Hello, and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and my guest today is poised to sell a ton of books this summer. Frances Cha is the author of the novel If I Had Your Face. She grew up in the United States, Hong Kong, and South Korea, and worked as a travel and culture editor for CNN International. Her debut novel is about four young women in Korea's underclass, in a world defined by beauty, wealth, and the doors they open. A world of extreme plastic surgery, social hierarchy, and celebrity obsession. Here's her story. Three things you need to write, I've read. Snacks, drinks, and silence. Uh, What is your all-time writing snack? Oh, wow. I just have an endless, endless um, stream of eating, like, itineraries (laughs) on a daily basis. But natto, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's this fermented soybean that uh, Japanese and Koreans eat a lot. So I subsisted on that almost entirely during grad school, and that's kind of a habit even now. So it's like the perfect protein snack during the day. Okay. And I highly recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's definitely an acquired taste because it has this stinky smell that I feel like even my in-laws, they are horrified when I open (laughs) open a packet. (laughs) And they're Korean, so... Uh, it's definitely an acquired taste. Gotcha. Natto. Yeah, I've heard of that, uh, but have not tried it. I will uh, consider. <laughs> Before we get into talking about your new book, uh, If I Had Your Face, I want to go back to get a bit of a sense of how this all came to be. So, I mean, you moved around quite a bit as a kid. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, ever since I was very little, I'm sure it's true of all writers, but books were something that completely consumed my life. And I started, so I was born in Minnesota. When I was four, I moved to Texas. And when I was eight, I moved to Hong Kong where I attended a British school. And then when I was 11, I moved to Korea and I attended a public Korean school. So until 11, I had really been reading mostly in English And so English fiction was very close to my heart. But when I started attending Korean school that was outside of Seoul in one of those nearby provinces, that's when I was really immersed in Korean environment and Korean schooling and 12 subjects in Korean. Mm -hmm. And I would still travel to a bookstore. Uh, It would take me about an hour and a half to two hours door to door and stock up on English books uh, several times a year. And that's when I would buy the latest, I guess the YA novels at the time. Mm -hmm. And then as I grew a little older, um, adult novels too. And of course I was still reading a lot in Korean, um, but the books that I encountered in English were mostly set in the States or in the UK and they had, you know, not a very ethnically diverse uh, protagonists. And yeah, just to kind of condense um, how it all came to be. I when I read the Joy Luck Club for the first time, that's when I encountered a novel with an Asian protagonist. And that really changed my 
worldview of fiction, uh, of English fiction. And mm. that's when I kind of thought, okay, maybe I can envision writing something like this one day set in Korea. Where did you come upon the Joy Luck Club? It was in a Korean bookstore in Seoul. Um, and it was on one of my trips out to the bookstore. What was it about that book particularly that lingered with you for so many years? I think it was right around the time when I was entering adolescence and of course encountering you know, difficulties with my mom in terms of clashing with her on all these things. <laughs> when I look at my diary uh, from that period, it's all about how she ruined my life, bringing me here to Korea, <laughs> um, putting me into this, you know, school that I, I didn't grow up with the other students, and I felt like an outsider. Then again, you know, when I think about it now, I wonder if that's just what all, <laughs> all you know, adolescents go through because mm. I've read accounts of people who've grown up in the same town their whole life, and they still feel not at home there they don't feel accepted and they feel like an outsider even in that instance but i always thought it was because i was moving around so much right but i think every the thing that connects us all yeah. <laughs> is the, that experience of reading and feeling like oh this character is someone very near and dear to my heart and i can i can identify with their loneliness and their feeling of ostracism and being ostracized and and being an outsider. Um, but the Joy Luck Club, um, going back to that, it because it deals with mothers and daughters and it really examines the conflict from both sides. And it's not like the relationships are fraught. They are very loving on on either side, but it's just about the misunderstandings that come with a generational gap, along with the cultural gap of the Chinese from China and the Chinese who are born and raised in America. And even though I was Korean, I still identified with their, you know, their conflicts and <laughs> misunderstandings mm. and the grievance grievances um, on either side. And as I grew older, I started identifying more with the mothers <laughs> as well. Mm. Probably as you became a mother too. Oh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> now I'm just completely on the side of the mother. <laughs> and yeah. Um, that that earlier part though answers the question uh, because moving around so much, you know, I wonder naturally does it does it feel like an adventure or is there a reluctance there to move around and and can you feel at home in a place? So it was hard then moving around all the time. I, I, as a child, it was hard, definitely, and it's something that I. I think about a lot as a parent now of two young children and I'm thinking, oh, do I want to give them a more global experience and a, a very diverse life experience in different countries and different continents, um, which I'm very grateful for now. And I think that allowed me to become who I am right now and, and, and be a writer that bridges cultures. But at the same time, you know, it's hard to, in, go into a new school in a new country as a new student and not necessarily knowing the language and the culture. And that's not, it, there's such a huge trade-off either way if you stay in one stable place versus if you move. So it's something that I 
think about with my husband all the time. He grew mm-hmm. up in New Jersey mm-hmm. and in the same town his whole life. And we're always talking about what what is better for our children. Mm-hmm. As you were a kid, did any place come to feel more like home than the rest, either just by the fact of living there longer than the other places or uh, having a, a more special feel to it? Or did they all just kind of feel like you were always moving? When people ask me where, where I'm from, I say very firmly I'm from Korea. Um, and that's where I identify with the most. And because it was home for me ever since I was 11, so even though I went to boarding school and college and grad school, I was still returning home. You know, in boarding school, I still spent five months out of the year, which were breaks um, in Korea. So that's almost half the year um, for high school. And the same for college. I took you know, every semester off that I could and, and interned in Korea. Mm-hmm. So uh, and then I worked in Korea after college and after grad school. Um, so it's always now it's it it has definitely been home for the past two decades. Mm-hmm. So grad school was at Columbia, uh, did the MFA program there. But but prior to that, you know, if you can think back to reading the Joy Luck Club and maybe getting the kernels of a of an idea that you might want to write a book someday uh, for more people to read and and see themselves reflected on the page, uh, did it feel like a realistic possibility then? that uh, that you might become a writer <laughs> um it was definitely a far-off dream but my father's family is very literary so my grandfather and my oldest uncle he they translated all the russian major works into korean mm-hmm. and so my father always you know thought of himself as being from this literary family. So he kind of understood where I was coming from. And my mom was always very supportive as well. And that's rather rare in Korean families. I think that really is a reason why there are not more novels based in (laughs) Korea, Hmm. um, because it's kind of discouraged as being, being a writer is discouraged for you know, being a very unreliable source of income and it's very unstable, which is completely true. I mm. wouldn't recommend this necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your book. I mean, congratulations on the debut. So this book, If I Had Your Face, uh, it follows the lives of these four Korean women, right? All of them living in modern day Seoul. Uh, yes. How did the story come to you? Was it a particular one of these storylines that came first out of these women? The storyline that came first, actually, and the the one that I spent years on, ended up being cut entirely from the book. <laughs> you really killed your darlings on this really one. How it is, yeah. <laughs> and then it was it's ostensibly being turned into my second book, but I think I might actually take a completely different direction. My editor would be very horrified if I, if I said that. Uh, and but. It was written in chronological order in terms of the character. Mm. So Ara was first. That okay. was the first. Yeah. Beauty is something central to the story in If I Had Your Face. You know, both both the doors that it opens and the lengths to which people will go to achieve it. And the way it becomes commodified under uh, capitalism as well. What interested you about beauty and in, in, in writing about it in this book? There is definitely a sense of you have to put your best face forward in Korea. And it's considered 
to be almost rude if you don't take the time to appear, you know, put together. And if you show up to a meeting or a dinner or a lunch or something, and you look like you haven't put any thought into your appearance at all, it's like, oh, you know, it's it's rude to the elders, especially because they think you don't think they're worthy enough to take the time to look um, put together. And it's something, you know, I, because I go back and forth between the West and the East so often, it, it's really interesting to always observe how different things are looked at differently. Um, and the contrast is very immediate and stark. And so I, I find it interesting that, you know, the West tends to judge this kind of emphasis on beauty as being very vain and frivolous, while at the same time, um, really exalting those mm -hmm. that are beautiful. And everyone, for, and this is the example that I always use, but so many people go through braces, right? Mm -hmm. And that really changes your look very drastically. Um, and it takes thousands of dollars and years and pain to change your appearance. But then that's not included in the whole roundup of, you know, you should never change who you are. But at the same time, it will indirectly or very directly impact your confidence and therefore, you know, can impact your love life, your job interviews, um, to all these things in your life in ways that are very immediate, <laughs> I think. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to kind of examine, like, the reasons why people choose to, for example, undergo plastic surgery and extreme plastic surgery, and there is this judgment placed upon them. And I wanted to invite the reader to reserve judgment against them because they have very, very, you know, very compelling reasons to me. And it, it's more than what meets the eye. And if you go dig beyond the surface, it's from a desire to make your life better, which you can't fault anyone for, you know, hmm. that's kind of what is ambition. The world you create in, in this book is one in which, I mean, that uh, plastic surgery and extreme plastic surgery is, is quite common. I mean, quite linked to the characters as well. Is that the case in Korea? Is that, is it, is it as common as it's uh, written about in the book? I mean, I chose to portray two very extreme characters. They, it's not as common, you know, I, I, I am rather horrified by some write-ups of the book that say that everyone undergoes this extreme jawline surgery. That's not mm -hmm. true at all. And I would actually, you know, I did explain it in the book, but I suppose it makes for better headlines. Um, and I, I chose to write about the extremes because it is so interesting to me and fascinating. And there's a lot, you know, the reasons why we we write about things is because things bother us or interest us or and all of that. Uh, but South Korea does have the highest per capita rate of plastic surgery in the world for, I think, men and women. Um, but you know, it's not like everyone on the street has had plastic surgery. It's still a good mix of, of both. <laughs> right, 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 right. 
Uh, one of the other things in this book that you write about, another big theme, is social class. You know, the world is one uh, starkly divided between those with means and those without. And primarily the, the characters that you're writing about are, are falling into the latter category. Uh, what did you want to explore with social class? So Korea is definitely a place where it's hard to succeed unless you are connected or if you have money. So it's it's very drastic that way and it's becoming more so with every passing year due to especially the inflated real estate prices which are skyrocketing. And so an, an average salary man, um, even if they have a good job at a good company, no matter how hard they save on their own, it's quite impossible to buy you know, a, an apartment for a family in Seoul. And this is leading to low birth rates, like people get married very late, if at all. And it's drastically changing the demographics of the country. And I wanted to explore what happens to characters who are not born into wealth and connections, and they don't have this extreme academic drive that marks all of Korean society and kind of how their, their currency for these women are beauty. Uh, the, so that I found was very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I chose to go down that road. Well, it, it, that particularly is, you know, exemplified perhaps most in the character Kiri, uh, one of the characters. She works at a room salon at this place that is mostly dominated by, you know, men, rich men, and the women who get paid to keep them entertained. You know, if we're talking beauty and social class, this kind of hits right at the center of that. And, and a good number of the chapters from uh, Kiri's perspective take place in a room salon. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, your interests in, in room salons and, and sort of what, uh, what they represent more broadly. So I didn't know what room salons were until I actually went to one by accident. And it was because a guy friend of mine had called me to a room salon. He was very drunk at the time. And he had been uh, fighting with his girlfriend and all both of them were friends of mine. So he just wanted to vent to me about her. And he happened to be at a room salon and he called me there. And when I entered, I, I didn't realize for um, a, a little while that it was a place out of the ordinary because I was just focused on my friend. And then I, I soon saw that the, the that a hush had come over the room, which is kind of like a karaoke room. Mm -hmm. uh, and then his friends had were now glaring at us because my friend and I were speaking in English which is a marker that, you know, we're not of this world. And then the girls were not speaking either. And they were kind of looking around and, and being very awkward. And then I realized that it was, it, this must be a room salon. Um, and it's very strange because all the girls are so beautiful and they're beautifully dressed. And it's clear that they're not typically the, the girls that I see in my daily life. And so once I, once I realized what a room salon entailed, 
um, I began to see them around. And when I went to the hair salon, which I do often when I'm in Korea, I saw that they would all come in at a certain time in the afternoon and get ready. And they would get this special rate that, um, that I asked for. I was like, oh, how come that, that girl is getting the special rate? Can I get that too? Because I'm a regular. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. That's only for <laughs> me, which are like room salon girls. And I was like, oh, okay. So that relationship between a hair salon and a room salon girl you know, was something that I observed mm -hmm. in my in my life as well. And so I started going down that route. And it's something that bothers me as a woman. I think it's very unfair to women across many different levels. Um, and so I decided to write about it. This book, it bounces back and forth between Korea and the U.S., uh, you know, there's the character uh, Miho who goes back and forth between the two uh, on a scholarship, and you know there are parallels there with your own experience going back and forth between countries. Um, how did you settle on how you would write this book, knowing that uh, the audience would be different if you're writing for a Korean reader versus an American one? You know, how did how did you find who your audience would be for this? So it was something that I thought about with every sentence and every name and every word choice, I didn't want to alienate the reader coming with no context of Korea. And I wanted to explain contextually, um, you know, some of the concepts and, and for example, the food and all of that. But I also didn't want to alienate someone like me who is fully aware of of all Korean, cult not all Korean culture, but they're very right. familiar with Korean culture. And yet I wanted it to be interesting for them too. So it kind of, um, it, it, you know what reminded me of my efforts is a cookbook that I read recently by mm. a chef that I really like called Hooni Kim. And his, it's a Korean cookbook. And he has like four pages on how to cook white rice, which, mm -hmm. you know, when I first opened that section on white rice, I was like, why would you devote, devote four pages? And then <laughs> it was all about, you know, it, it was so precise and all about his process of what makes a perfect, perfect pot of white rice and it, it was full of things that I had never known before even though I've been making rice you know and eating rice all my life and it had so much to teach me and I was like oh okay Huni is doing exactly what I tried to do in my book which is to have something for everybody you know right <laughs> right person who's who's been eating and cooking for a long time um, so that's kind of the approach that I took <laughs> with my book were there uh, books, you know, you talked about the Joy Luck Club already. Were there other books you could take inspiration from to try and figure out how to write without feeling as though you had to explain every single thing for for an American reader and, and at the expense, you know, alienate perhaps a Korean reader who would know more? Right. So Murakami, uh, since he, but he's translated. So the works in translation are, of course, kind of, they don't take into account the international reader, mm. but I feel like the later Murakami works do because he is aware of his international readership. So that was quite um, something that 
he he really you know it opened smack in the middle of Japan and the whole whole narrative takes place in Japan but you do have um, a lot of Western references in terms of the music and um, the concepts and and all of that like actresses and things like that but um, but even books set in for example rural America where the culture is very different from New York and the way that they they don't hammer out the explanation uh, like Olive Kittredge or Lucy Barton uh, by Elizabeth Strout. I think she does a, a really incredible job of encapsulating what rural life in America is like, you know, on the very extreme side of that uh, spectrum. So you know, things like that. And in China too, out of Hajin, Yi and Lee, I read a lot. Hmm. This book uh, you've written uh, you, you, you've spoken before about taking 10 years to write this book. You know, you've, you've, you've talked about writing in the dark. Um, what was the key to maintain focus and energy over 10 years? You know, when the end result is so far away, uh, it can be so hard, I think, to, to see through a project like that when it takes so far, uh, it takes so long to do. Uh, what was the key for you to, to stay focused throughout that time? It's really fear of humiliation <laughs> it's a powerful and force <laughs> like sheer desperation um, towards the latter years because i think when i was working at samsung and when i was working at cnn um, and i had these titles that i was very comfortable with um, for my mom you know i not like letting down my mom and mm -hmm. all that she had contributed to my very expensive education and her, all her sacrifice. <laughs> At least you can tell people, you know, that her her daughter has a, a full time job. And so when I left and I was like, I'm really going to focus on my writing and I'm going to write this book, do or die. Uh, that desperation is, is quite something. <laughs> it's I highly recommend it. Uh, just just fear of of disappointing <laughs> <your> <laughs> and all that they have sacrificed for you. And that's a very filial Asian notion that I, I also write about a lot as well. And this book has taken on so many different forms. Um, it's unrecognizable from the first years, but every time I would go into a bookstore and read a beautiful work of, you know, a work of art, then I would be freshly inspired to go and write. Or if I read a complete piece of crap, then I'd be like, oh, I can write better than that. So, <laughs> you know, it, like both ends of the spectrum really inspired me. Like if this person can get published, I can get published. Mm. Or this is so beautiful. I want to contribute to the, the world and write about Korea, which I, I don't see in English fiction. And, but if it's too good of a book that you read, then you become thrown into despair and you're like, oh, I'll never make it. I'll never <laughs> <laughs> write anything good. <laughs> so that can be very discouraging. So the, so the key is to read worse writing or, or equal writing to your own, but not better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or not too much better anyhow. 
better. Yeah, I want to finish with a quote of yours. Uh, and if you could just get you to expand on it a little bit. Uh, you've, you've said this before in another interview, I believe. Everything that you're writing now is going to be edited or cut anyway. So stop pouring over every word so painstakingly. Uh, this is advice that you would have given to your younger yeah. self. Uh, can you talk some more about that? I mean, when I was was writing, it was very hard because no one is editing you. And I would try to craft every word to be so beautiful. Again, this is after I read something incredibly, incredibly exquisite by Elizabeth Stroud or something mm -hmm. where every sentence makes your heart break. And I feel like, oh my God, I have to do that with every sentence. And then after I've been through this editing process, and this was after, also after I'd been through my job at CNN, where they ruthlessly cut everything that you write, and it makes you a better writer that because of that. And having become accustomed to being brutally edited all the time, <laughs> um, that really prepared me well for editing in the fiction. Although my editor at Random House has just been so like complete opposite of my editors at CNN. She's very careful and says everything is a suggestion and I, I should only take her suggestions if I feel comfortable with them. And I'm like, oh, wow, you know, that was never asked <laughs> at CNN. <laughs> um, so yeah, if I had to go back to my earlier years of writing before those jobs, I would tell myself that. Hmm. Uh, just finally, you've got another book on the way, I've heard, uh, sort of a sequel to this one in some senses. Did I read correctly? It's it's more in the horror genre? It's not a sequel. It does take some ele elements of the character that was cut out, because she was based in Boston. Mm -hmm. She she was an adoptee who returned to Korea. And so that element will remain and it's set halfway, like half in Boston and half in Korea. And it is literary horror. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, it's like, what did you, I didn't know you were a horror fan. And I was like, well, this is just what it's becoming. <laughs> well, uh, I'll look very much forward to reading it. And Francis, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and most of all, tell someone else about it. If you really love the show, if you want to support in some way, head to the shop section on the Story Untold website. There's merch there. It helps to keep the show going. Theme music for Story Untold is by Dr. Turtle, off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was The Story Untold. See you next time. Mm -hmm.